The book of Jeremiah, chapter 11, please. Follow along in a copy of the Scriptures. If you need a copy, just raise your hand and someone in the back will bring you a Bible. Raise your hand. Keep your hand up until you have a Bible in it. Jeremiah, chapter 11. If you're new to the Bible, you can just look in the table of contents and find a page number for the book of Jeremiah. And we are this morning in chapter 11, and Carde is going to read for us this morning our passage. Good morning. Good morning. Jeremiah chapter 11. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Hear the words of this covenant, and speak them to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant that I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the, li- from the iron furnace, saying, Listen to my voice, do all that I command you. So shall, so shall you be my people, and I will be your God that I may confirm the oath that I swore to your fathers, to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as at this day. Then I answered, So be it, Lord. And the Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, warning them persistently, even to this day, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, I brought upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. Against the Lord said to me, again the Lord said to me, a conspiracy exists among the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned, they have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refuse to hear my words. They have gone after other gods to serve them, the house of Israel and the Lord of, the the house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I have made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I I am bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. Though they, Though they cry to me, I will not listen to them. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry to the gods to whom they make offerings, but they cannot save them in the time of their trouble. For your gods have become as many as your cities, O Judah, and as many as the streets of Jerusalem are the altars you have set up to shame, altars to make offerings to Baal. Therefore, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer on their behalf. For I will not listen when they call to me in the time of their trouble. What right has my beloved in my house when she has done many vile deeds? Can even sacrificial flesh avert your doom? Can you then exalt? The Lord once called you a green olive tree, a beautiful, beautiful with green, with good fruit. But with the roar of a great tempest, he will set fire to it and his branches will be consumed. The Lord of hosts who planted you has decreed disaster against you because of the evil that the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done, provoking me to anger by making offerings to Baal. The Lord made it known to me, and I knew. Then you showed me their deeds. But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know it was against me 
they devised schemes, saying, Let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. But O Lord of hosts, who judges rightly, who tests the hearts and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them. For to you have I committed my cause. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth, who seek your life, and say, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord. You will die by your hand. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters shall die by famine, and none of them shall be left. For I will bring disaster upon, Anath upon the men of Anathoth the year of their punishment. Read another word. Amen. The old uh, preacher, James Montgomery Boyce, once told a story of a man who was converted in a war and uh, very passionate about his newfound faith. And as he was coming home, he was concerned because uh, uh, he had friends that were uh, definitely not Christians and would not be happy uh, about his, his newfound faith. And, uh, um, and also he knew that they were uh, going to be a temptation for him as well. And so he didn't know what to do about his friends. So he went to his pastor and he asked his pastor, what do I, I, don't, I don't know what to do. I don't want to have to lose my friends and I'm afraid I'm going to have to lose them. And the pastor said, here's the reality, is as you're clear about your own confession of Christ and following Jesus, your friends are going to lose you. And uh, that hard truth proved to be true uh, uh, for, the, for this man. As he went back, uh, immediately he uh, reconnected with a, an old friend, uh, and she asked how, the, how things were and, and what his experience was like, and he said, he said it, was, you know, it was crazy. He said, but I had the most amazing experience. I committed my life to Jesus Christ, and, uh, and he's my Savior, and he's my Lord. And uh, her face just went white. And the conversation was sort of awkward after that. And she walked away. And uh, sometime later, another guy came up and was like, hey, we've got some parties planned to welcome you back. And uh, he was like, all right. He's like, just so you know, you know I'm not going to party like I once did. And he said the same thing. The parties were, were, were canceled. Um, and then there was another couple uh, that he had an experience with. All that to say, the reality was that this man was rejected by his friends because of his confession in Jesus Christ. James Montgomery Boyce, on that story, what he said was this. He said, this is kind of the irony. He said, the same confession that had aligned him with Christ had separated him from those who did not want Jesus Christ as Savior, and who in fact did not even want to hear about him. So I want to talk to you today on this difficult theme, rejected with Jesus. What happens when we are rejected with Jesus? And if you look here in Jeremiah, trust you, you're already there, 
what we see is that Jeremiah, in this passage, is being rejected because of the message that he is commanded to carry. I wonder, are you willing to be rejected for the sake of truth? Are you willing to be rejected for the sake of righteousness? Are you willing to be rejected by friends, uh, by pop society, by the world, with Jesus? The system of the world is opposed to the system of God's kingdom. I don't have time to kind of break it all down for you, but just trust me, there is a stark contrast between the way that the world thinks and the way that we as God's people of God's kingdom uh, are called to think. The, the pursuit then of popularity in this world will often put you at odds with God's kingdom. Or we could turn that around and we could say the pursuit of God's kingdom in this world will often put you at odds with popularity in this world. Charles Spurgeon preached uh, in England during the days of slavery in the Americas. And Spurgeon was a huge critic of slavery. He, he saw it as uh, going against the truth of God. It was a gospel application for him to say that what's happening with slavery in America is merely the, the cloaking of a demonic influence with the clothing of the church. And he condemned those who could consider themselves Christians who were also slave owners. Uh, he saw that as hypocrisy. He saw it as, this is just this is not true Christianity. In his own words, he says, Christ's free church, bought with his blood, must now bear the shame of cursing Africa and keeping her sons in bondage. What he saw was that slavery in America was bringing shame on the church. Now here's my point in telling you this. In response to Spurgeon, many of these hypocritical slave-owning pastors in America responded in this way, that, quote, if the pharisaical author, referring to Spurgeon, by the way, they were doing Spurgeon book burnings down in the South. They, uh, Spur, Spurgeon had said he was considering a preaching tour in the States. And this was their response. If you come to the South, book burnings, they had nooses hanging, waiting for them. And they said this, uh, they said, if the, if the pharisaical author should ever show himself in these parts, we trust that a stout cord may speedily find its way around his eloquent throat. It is poetic. We'll give him that. That's about it. <laughs> One author put it this way. He said these, these slave owners were foaming with rage because they could not kill Spurgeon. Now, you know, hindsight's 2020, they say. The, 
There were a, a, a lot of people of Spurgeon's era who did not, who kept their mouths shut. Because they weren't willing to take this. This kind of unpopularity. This is, you know, I, I like Spurgeon. Partly because I, he, he spoke truth. Regardless of whether or not it got him popularity. And this is just a good example of that. Meaning, are you willing to stand for Christ? Are you willing to stand for truth? Are you willing to stand for the gospel? Are you willing to stand on whatever it is that you've got to stand on in order to be faithful to this book, even if it means unpopularity in this world? Listen, cultural winds come and go. What the culture values, it changes over time. The cultural wind in the 1860s was blowing this way, in the 1960s it was blowing this way. And now in 2018, cultural winds are blowing in a different place. But the question is, wherever the cultural winds are blowing, are we willing to stand firm on the, God, uh, on the gospel, on God's word, which doesn't change? This is like the foundation of a, of a flagpole on which we, 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 we wave our flag regardless of the winds. And I'm telling you, in every era, and I just don't have time to take you through the history lesson here, but in every era, Christians have died for different causes. But there's always been something that is going to cause extreme popularity, uh, unpopularity, rather, with the world uh, because of the, the values and the ways of the kingdom of God. What we see here in this text, and this is why I want to go this direction this morning, what we see in this text is actually an assassination conspiracy against Jeremiah. There's a plot for his life from the very people that he is, uh, that, that he's preaching Two, what led up to the plot against his life? Well, in verses 1 through verse 17, we have a sermon by Jeremiah. And I think that this is probably the immediate reason for the plot. So we could call Jeremiah's sermon here in verses 1 through 17 something like, the covenant's broken. Or maybe we could add to that, the covenant's broken, here comes the curse. So when you look at his sermon here in verses 1 through 5, his opening verses. He reminds the people of Israel of the Sinai covenant. This covenant that God made with Moses on Mount Sinai. A covenant with blessings and stipulations. We see those here in the text. In verse 4, he says, listen to my voice and do all that I command you so you shall be my people and I will be your God that I might proclaim uh, confirm the oath that I swore to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey at, at, at this day. The, 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 the stipulations of the covenant that God made with Moses and therefore with his people was simply this, listen to me, hear my word, and as a result of listening to me, I am going to give you the land flowing with milk and honey, and I'm going to bring you into and keep you in a relationship with me. The land and a relationship. That was the blessing of the covenant. Well, what's the reality? Verse 3, there was also a curse attached to it. We see that clearly. Why 
Would they be cursed? Well, they're cursed because they're not listening, it says, to God. Look at verse 8. They did not obey or incline their voice. Their ear, rather, I'm sorry. But everyone walked in the stubbornness of his own heart. Therefore, I brought upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do. In verse 9, their rebellion against God is considered to be, ironically, a conspiracy against God. In verse 16, there's this image that is used which explains this conspiracy. In verse 16, look at it. He says, The Lord once called you a green olive tree, beautiful with good fruit, but with the roar of the great tempest, He will set it on fire and its branches will be consumed. The Lord of hosts who planted you has decreed disaster against you because of the evil that that the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done, provoking me to anger by making offerings to Baal. This conspiracy against God has exchanged God for the gods of the Baals, and as a result, the curse of the covenant is all that is left. The theologian Alec Motier, in his commentary on Jeremiah, He summarizes this sermon, verses 1 through 17, in this way. He basically says what Jeremiah is saying is that the Sinai covenant, the covenant that God made with Moses, the covenant is so broken that there is nothing left of it but the horrors of the curse. There is nothing left of the covenant but the horrors of of invasion, of defeat, and of exile. What God is saying here through Jeremiah in this sermon is that the curse of the covenant is inescapable. He actually gives us four reasons why it's inescapable. Number one, God won't listen, verse 11. Number two, it's inescapable because the other gods won't help you, in verse 12. Number three, it's inescapable because Jeremiah won't pray for them. It's pointless, verse 14. Number four, it's inescapable because their sacrificial system won't be beneficial. Verse 15. In other words, Jeremiah is completely dismantling the people's confidence in themselves. He's dismantling their, conference, their confidence in the temple. He has, is, is dismantling their confidence in the written law. He's dismantling their confidence in their circumcision. He's dismantling their conf- confidence in this case, immediately right here, in the very covenant that they have with God through Moses on Mount Sinai, which means he's dismantling all of the confidence they have. And when you dismantle somebody's confidence, watch out. They're turning against him. You know, when we preach messages like we did last week, by the fact that there is no other Savior that truly saves? Well, that's great as long as you have a Savior in Jesus Christ. But if you reject Jesus, we're saying you have no Savior. (laughs) So the Gospel dismantles all of our confidence. It dismantles our confidence in our regular church attendance. The gospel dismantles our confidence in our good works. 
The gospel dismantles confidence in our human saviors, in our spouse, in our children, in our friends, in our boss, in our heroes. The gospel dismantles confidence in our politics. The gospel dismantles our, our confidence in our approval that we receive from others. You, you might remember last week I said, when you get to heaven one day and, and God says, why should I let you in, in, into, in, into heaven? Don't look for Joel Kurz. Like, I'm trying to dismantle your confidence in me as your Savior. Or even as some, uh, an atheist friend of mine, he was like, he said, what, look, once I get there, if it's all true, if it's all true, then I'm just going to say, where's Joel at? He can, te- he, can, he can testify on my behalf. He was a good friend of mine. I'm, and I told him, I was like, you don't want me as your attorney <laughs> in heaven. There is one attorney available to you, church. And his name is Jesus Christ. And friend, you're rejecting your one attorney. The gospel dismantles all of our confidence in our substances, the ability to get high, the things that, that we look for, the things that we fall back on. The gospel dismantles all of our confidence. Now, it leaves us naked, right? But then the gospel clothes us with Jesus Christ. We're clothed in his righteousness. We're clothed in his perfection. We're clothed in his blood, which forgives us our sins. And because of his clothing, we can stand before God. Can you stand before God? Answer, with Christ you can. With Christ, God sees you as his very own son, Jesus Christ, with his righteousness. And you are accepted by God through Christ. That's why Christ is so important. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus Christ? Have you ever turned to Christ and received him, committed your life to him and said, he's my Lord, he's my hope, he's my Savior, he's my message? Now that was last week's sermon. This week's sermon looks at the other side. This week's sermon looks at the reality that there are those who hear this message and still reject Christ, which means they're left naked and they have no clothes. If they reject God, what is their response toward God's servant? Rejection. This is what Jeremiah is now dealing with as he is bringing this message from God to the people who reject God. Therefore, they reject God's servant. And so we see this plot then against Jeremiah's life. Look at verse 18. He says, The Lord made it known to me, and I knew. Then you showed me their deeds. But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know it was against me. They divide schemes, saying, Let us destroy the, fruit with its, uh, the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name might be remembered no more. Jeremiah here sees himself as 
this lamb being led to the slaughter. He didn't know that there was a plot against his life. He was going on preaching as if he did every other day, and he didn't realize that people were actually scheming against him, plotting, conspiring together to destroy him. As he goes on, more and more of this plot is revealed in verse 21. We see that it comes from the very people of Anathoth, his hometown. His own people have rejected him. These are probably people who he grew up with. Best friends that he had as a child. Who are now plotting against his life. But it's even closer to home than that. In verse 22, we see that that it was his own family or I'm sorry, in verse 6, rather. Let's get down to verse 6 of chapter 12. He says, even your, your brothers in the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. Don't listen to them. This is a plot that has come from his own village. It's a plot that has come from his own family. My point is this. The, very peop- the, the people who Jeremiah probably cared most about have not just simply rejected the message, but they've rejected the messenger, and they're seeking to take him out. They're plotting together to destroy him. Now, you can kind of get it from, from, from a fleshly point of view. Given the message that Jeremiah is bringing with him, if you reject this message, you've got nothing left. It's a tough message. And so instead of dealing with the exposure of their sin and the reality of the message that God has sent them through his messenger Jeremiah, the response of Jeremiah's family members and villagers is just simply, let's just take him out. Let's just destroy him. Now Isaiah came just a few years before Jeremiah. And Isaiah wrote, Isaiah chapter 55 verse 7, which says, he, the suffering servant, will be like a lamb led to the slaughter. I think Jeremiah sees himself as a type of that suffering servant. Sort of in the line of that fulfillment. A servant who has come, and he's come to his own, and he is suffering. And he is being led like a lamb to the slaughter. Now, I just want to pause here for a minute. What would you do if you were Jeremiah? What would you do if if the people came at you in this kind of way? What would be our response if we knew that if we continue on with this message that God has given us, that we are literally going to lose our lives? Well, here's the reality. As I said earlier, cultural winds come and go. But in every era, in every stage of life, in every stage of of human history, the system of the world has always gone against the system of the kingdom. Which means the people of the kingdom will never really have complete popularity in this world. It means that this is applicable for us today as we think of our own lives, our own family members, our own friends, and the message that we have been entrusted with as well. 
So let me just draw out for you two lessons that we can take from Jeremiah and apply to our own life when the world rejects us. How does Jeremiah respond? Number one, first lesson, number one, commit the situation to God. Jeremiah commits the situation to God. Meaning he doesn't retaliate when he finds out. I heard a story of a woman who uh, was at a grocery store and she was checking out her, uh, her stuff and uh, the, the grocer noticed that she had a TV remote in her purse. And he said, just out of curiosity, do you always carry your TV remote with you in your purse? And she said, no, I wanted my husband to go shopping for me and he didn't, and so this was the least I could do. <laughs> you ever heard the phrase, don't get mad, get even? little application for you there. We often think in terms of retaliation when somebody wrongs us, don't we? We often hear that phrase, don't get mad, get even. We think, yeah, that sounds like a better option. Getting even is probably better than just being bitter, is it? Well, I wonder if the gospel were to offer us like a third option. Don't get mad, don't get even. Come on, somebody help me out. Pray on it. What do we do? Here's Jeremiah's option. We commit the cause to God. We give it over to God. And it, could, it, it can begin with forgiveness, but here's the question. We can have an attitude of forgiveness towards somebody who has rejected us, who has hurt us. Question, what happens if they continue to hurt us? What happens if they don't repent? Now, don't get me wrong. You can have an attitude of forgiveness toward that person. But what happens when they continue? Are you, you, you understand what I'm saying here? What do we do? What was, the, what was it? It's their problem? Arm ourselves, get a gun? Commit yourself to prayer. Let's look, let's look at what Jeremiah does. Jeremiah, in this moment, looks to God. He commits this situation over to his God. And he, he does it in a, in a pretty visceral sort of way. Look at chapter 11. Verse 20, he says, But, O oh Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them. For to you I have committed my cause. Is that an okay prayer to pray? Well, I don't know if I can say no because it's in the Bible. <laughs> but it doesn't sound right. Do you realize that vengeance in and of itself is not actually the problem? The question is, is who is taking out the vengeance? Romans chapter 12, verse 19, God says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. 
what does that tell us? Well, it actually tells us that if I don't retaliate, that there is a greater retaliation that is to come. Family, God is a just God. He doesn't just look the other way when you're hurt. He doesn't just close his eyes and pretend like he didn't see it when you are rejected. When people plot against your life, when, when people conspire against you. No, God is a just God. And God says, vengeance is mine, not yours. Meaning, and he actually says, leave room for God's wrath. It's almost, there's a sense here where I think God is communicating to us, look, if you go ahead and take vengeance into your own hands, all right, done. But I'll do a better job. Leave room for me to do it. This is what it means to commit this to God. Like when someone says, I'm just giving that situation to God, that's not passive. That's not weak. That's recognizing that we have a strong, powerful, holy, just God who will make everything right. Amen. No wrong will, be put right, uh, will not be put right in his kingdom. Oh, this is very personal, isn't it? <laughs> because people have wronged you. I mean, don't get me wrong, we're going to get back to this whole rejected for the sake of Christ. But in some sense, all of our life lived, is a, as we're living a life for His glory, any wrongs that come us is a reality of sin in this world, and it hurts. What do we do? It's practical for all of us. <clears throat> I was counseling a woman a number of years ago. And she had discovered that her daughter was sexually abused by uh, a certain man. She had taken it to the authorities. I assisted as much as I possibly could. Police were involved. It was explored. There were, uh, doctors were involved. And there was no, not enough evidence. But she was convinced, and I don't doubt her, that this man was guilty. And there was nothing else that could be done. So we were sitting over at 1411 in the front room right there. And she said, I'm going to kill him. And don't get me wrong, I, I thought, not a bad idea. <laughs> Let's, let, me, let me see how I can... <laughs> I mean, this is the kind of stuff that makes you want to kill somebody, isn't it? I get it. I said, let's just pause this conversation for a moment. And I went to Romans 12, chapter 12, verse 19. I read, God said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. I said, I think we need at this point to stay as far away from him as we can. Let's get as much help for your daughter as much as we can. And let's commit this to God. And that's what I meant when I said, let's commit this. To, it wasn't some passive sort of prayer. God will repay. I went on at, sometime later as we continue to explore this together, and I, I also told the young lady later, I said, you know, God will take out vengeance on this individual in one of two ways. One, he will do it while he's on this earth. His life will be miserable. 
and he will receive God's judgment everywhere he walks. And one day he's going to stand before God naked with nothing but his guilt. And he will eternally pay for the wrong that he's committed. Or two, this is one of the sins that Jesus paid for on the cross. It's possible that he could repent. And if that's the case, God is still not passive in that moment. If that's the case, this is a sin that we recognize was placed on Jesus Christ on the cross, and Jesus bore every bit. When we talk about Jesus bearing the wrath of God, this is some of the wrath we're talking about. He bore every bit of that judgment in his own body on the tree, and it's been paid for. And you will know that if he repents and confesses and probably turns himself in. But God will repay. Are you tracking with me, church? And so here's the first thing that Jeremiah does here is he recognizes that and he turns the situation over to God. He turns the cause over to God. He turns these people who have plotted against his life and rejected him over to God and says, God, you repay. The second thing he does is he commits his life to God no matter what. We are to live lives that are committed to God no matter what. Even if it means our own life is at stake. Martin Luther King Jr., his last sermon he ever preached, just the day before he was murdered, he, he, he ended his sermon with some of my favorite words that anybody has ever preached. He says, like anybody, I want to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But then he goes on and he says, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. King recognized that him doing God's will meant that he might not live a long life. Do you recognize that as well? Do you recognize that doing God's will and being people of the truth and people of the kingdom might actually bring you some rejection in the world in which you live. I think what King was saying was essentially this, I want to be faithful to the point of death. Jeremiah receives a death threat. Look at verse 21. But halfway through the verse right here, we see what the men of Anathoth are saying. And it's a death threat. They say, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord or you will die by our hand. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Let's just pause for a moment again. What would you do? Like in verse 6, Jeremiah has received a command from God, proclaim these words. And now in verse 21, they're saying, if you proclaim these words, you're going to die. What would you do? If you are in that situation, are you committed to Christ even if it means your death? With all of the, 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 the wonders of long life, would you agree with Martin Luther King and say, I'm just not so concerned about that right now. I want to do God's will. And friends, Jesus called us to be a people on mission. 
There's really no such thing as like a Christian who's not on mission. There's no such thing as a Christian who's living in the world like everybody else. But to be a Christian is to be a disciple. And what did Jesus say to his disciples? He says, go therefore into the world and make disciples. In Mark 16, he expand, or that's expounded on, and he says, preach the gospel. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Like Jeremiah, we have a message. It's called the gospel. Now, Jeremiah's message wasn't really geared to make Jeremiah popular. And the gospel message is not geared to really make us popular. But we are compelled to preach whether it's popular or not. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16, the Apostle Paul said on his own ministry, he says, I am compelled to preach. I'm compelled. I have to do this. And then he goes on and he says, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Now, don't get me wrong. Some Christians seek unpopularity. They seek division. They think, okay, what is the meanest way I can possibly say this? Those are the words I'm going to use. What is the most angry tone I can possibly use in my preaching? I'm going to do, I'm going to do that. Like some Christians, they, it's like, a, a, it's like a, a badge for them if they can get some division in their life, if they can get some, uh, uh, some persecution in their life. I mean, I don't know, maybe they have like little conferences where they get together and they talk about how, this is how you can be a mean Christian. Let's be a jerk conference. Come on out. It's only $195. That's a jerk thing to do. Come on out. Yet on the flip side, there are others who are so careful with everything that they say, and they erase so much of what they ought to say, and then they preach a gospel that really just kind of appeals to the masses, but it's not really the gospel. Like the whole, there's no other savior piece, backspace. <laughs> let's, try to, let's try to rethink how to say this. Like, we don't want to be that either. We want to be faithful to, to Jesus Christ. We want to be faithful to his word. And not just simply reject him in our own pursuit of popularity with the world. People of the kingdom are, are just not so concerned with being popular. And we're also not so concerned with trying to be unpopular. That's not necessarily something we like. What we're concerned about is pleasing God. I want to please God. May that be the declaration of every single one of us. Whether the cultural winds are blowing this way or that way, I just want to please God. Whether people are smiling at me and liking what I, what I put out there and they're buying my stuff and, and, and I'm getting promotions at work because my boss is a Christian and he likes it, blah, 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 blah. wonderful. But I still just want to please God. And if everything turns against me and all of a sudden I receive suffering because I'm a Christian, I still just want to please God. 
I'm not so concerned now about being popular, and I'm not so concerned about trying to be unpopular. I just want to please God. Jeremiah wanted to please God. He didn't want all of this. We're going to see later. He complains about it, actually, in a very godly way. Why do the wicked prosper? This brings suffering to him, and it hurts. But Jeremiah wouldn't think for a second to walk away from God. He just wants to please God. Isaiah talked about the suffering servant, and Jeremiah was a suffering servant that ought to be a model for us. Isaiah talked about this lamb that was led to the slaughter, and Jeremiah was plotted against and was like a lamb led to the slaughter, and he ought to be a model for us. Isaiah talked about this servant who's going to be rejected. Jeremiah was rejected by his own. They did not receive him. And his life ought to be a model for us when rejected by our own. But family, let me say this. Jeremiah is a mere shadow of what Isaiah was talking about. He's just kind of like one blip on that fulfillment of that prophecy. There was another prophet who came who was rejected. Jesus was the suffering servant who came. Jesus was the lamb who was led to the slaughter. Jesus was the one prophet who came to his own people and they did not receive him, but they rejected him. And what's more is when Jesus was rejected, in an ironic fashion, he gave life to those who were conspiring against him. Jesus' family was rejected on our behalf. The wrath of God for the conspirators against God is actually something that belongs on my head. Don't you see? Like in some ways, if you look at Jeremiah, we're not actually Jeremiah. We're the people conspiring against Jeremiah. That was me. I didn't want Jeremiah in my life. I wanted the messenger cut off. I want to live my life the way I want to live it, Jeremiah. I see myself here. What is hope for me? What is hope for the conspirator? Well, the hope is in Jesus Christ. As he came like a lamb led to the slaughter, he died for you and I. He died for those of us who are God-rejectors. He died for those of us who have put him on the cross. The nails that went into his hands were nails that I placed there. When I come to the Scriptures, I'm convicted. And when I read the whole of it, what I realize is that Jesus' blood is actually on my hands. Yet what I didn't know was that as we were conspiring against him, God used it for my good. And the blood that was on my hands is now a blood that bathes my soul. And I'm covered in it. And I stand before God forgiven of my rejection of him. Because of Jesus Christ, this one. Do you know Christ? Have you come to him? Family, coming to Christ means that you might be rejected by the world, but you are accepted by God. 
It means that you have life. It means that a new covenant has been made with you and for you. A covenant that is sealed by his blood. There was an old preacher who was rejected by the world, and he wrote in his diary these words. He said, everything is very dark now. Everything seems very dark. But still, God knows best. And then he wrote this. Rejected on earth. Accepted in heaven. When we are rejected with Jesus Christ by this world, when those who we love most lose us because of our faith in him, may these be the words that we pen in our own journals and diaries. Rejected on earth, accepted in heaven. That's our hope. God accepts you. Amen? Father, we ask that you would help us as we seek to be faithful to Jesus Christ. I pray that we would not uh, seek the popularity of the world's opinions, and cling to these things and embrace these things and subtly move away from your word, the word who became flesh, Jesus Christ. Help us to remain faithful to him. We thank you for your acceptance of us in him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.